I mean, if you if you check out my GitHub account, you're going to find out that I have a pretty serious integrity problem. <laughs> I mean, same. <laughs> oh man, I've, I've had I have 20 years of integrity problems as an engineer that we're going to have to work through. Gina, you and I are pretty nerdy, yes? Absolutely. You know what? I love a good, well-made app. I love a well-good-made anything, frankly. Yeah, anything that someone has thought about. What's the best design thing that you own? Oh, that's a a tough question. It's a brute, isn't it? I'm looking at my desk. I mean, I'll give you an easy out. Uh, Your MacBook is pretty well designed. My MacBook is pretty well designed, but I also appreciate just a really good fork or chair, honestly. Yeah, I've got these heavy IKEA forks. You pick them up, you're like, all right, thanks, Sweden. You did good. (laughs) Yeah. I'm excited because- Anyway, that's our podcast for today. (laughs) Uh, No, look, but you and I aren't the experts here. That's why we have a guest, damn it. We do. This is someone I've been friends with for a very long time, and I've been been reading his books for like 10 years. I've learned so much from, from him, and I'm so excited to get to talk to him today on the show, Scott Birkin. Hey, Scott. Scott! Oh, it's so good to be here. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Thank you. So, Scott, design. Design. That's it. That's all it says in the book. It's uh, one one character per page. It's a short book. That's all I need to know. Scott has a new book coming out this month. And actually, Scott has, has written, I mean, one of the things I admire about you is that you're so prolific and you've written books on so many subjects. Um, yeah. I mean, let's let's... Before we even get to the book, like, give us a little context. You are a writer about design and technology. Like, what is your bio, your potted bio that you would usually throw out there? The bio, most of the books are vaguely business culture related. Design is, for me, I don't know that my readers notice it, but I think of design as central to everything. That mm-hmm. a book is a design thing. A presentation is a design thing. Obviously, any piece of software or phone or a spoon or a fork is a design thing. And it's always just been the central theme and how I look at anything that's done well or not well. And I've written eight books, including this one. The first seven have nothing in the title about design. The only thing about design is really implied. And I always wanted to write a book that could teach anybody how to think and look at the world more like our best designers do. So that's the goal of the book, that anyone can pick it up and start to appreciate things in their life more or understand why the things that frustrate them what is it about the design and how they were made that bothers them so they can be more informed users of things and hopefully also better makers of things? So the audience is kind of non-designers. People don't have design thinking currently. Is that true? Yeah, well, it's both. So it's a little trickery going on here. Well, and, and let's let's make sure we get that title out there, right? What, what What is this book? How Design Makes the World. That's right. We'll say that five to seven more times throughout this podcast because well, that's how we support our, our the, a link in the you're show notes. giving us our time. <laughs> that's right. If you don't buy how design makes the world, you are a, a an animal. That's that's what I'm saying. All right. So who yeah who is this for? Who's this book for? Well, there's two kinds of people I was thinking about for this book. So one is everyone, which is a terrible thing to say if you're actually making a product because you can't just design for everyone. But part of what I wanted to do was solve the problem of the best design things that we use, we don't think about because they work really well. So most people don't think about their light switch. They don't think about their faucet in their kitchen. 
They don't think about how much engineering and design went on to make that little thing work. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned when we were joking around, you mentioned a nice fork from Ikea. We use silverware every day. Someone had to design that. When you pick up a coffee mug and it feels good in your hand, you're not, you don't even notice the grip because it feels so good. Someone designed that. So really good design usually goes unnoticed. And that's a problem for thinking about good design. We don't notice it. We just take it for granted. So I wanted to write a book that helps people understand and look at things in a more curious way. How could someone craft a cup or a spoon or a fork or a piece of software? How do they do that? And then when we use things that are frustrating, what did they get wrong? What mistake did they make? What is a consumer should I look for when I buy a thing? Because usually when you buy it, you don't really know it's design quality. So one audience is really just everyone because system designs affect us all the time. So, you know, I mean, let's talk about some things that are beautifully designed. Like an example that just popped into my head because I had a blood draw the other day is that thing that they stick you and then they're able to like fill five test tubes with your blood without having to stick you again, that, that continuous little fire hose that comes out of your blood. And I'm like, that is amazing, actually, because that beats the hell out of having a, a needle go into your body five times, right? And so, like, what are some other things that when you say good design, when it's like, you know, Scott, you're the design expert, what are some things that really stick out in your head? Well, one related to yours, there's all these mechanical operational things in our everyday life that we don't think about. And uh, one that I think about often is how when you go to your sink, you go to your faucet, there's just one knob that controls both the temperature and the volume. If ever you stay at like an old, back when we could travel, if ever you stay at like an old bed and breakfast or you ever mm. lived in an apartment that had an old style, you have a hot knob and a cold knob and it becomes like you're doing... Uh, construction work now with a bulldozer and there's all these, but that one device, the, the, the combination of those things seems so obvious and simple, but it's really not. There's a bunch of work that went on to think it through that you could operate something in just one way. I think of things like paper clips, or I think of, uh, we were talking before about you like your, your MacBook. I don't think about my keyboard very much. A lot of writers complain about their keyboards all the time. I use a generic Mac smart keyboard and I never think about it. It works just right for me. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's everybody gets real finicky when they're procrastinating. And then somehow it turns out when the deadline's there that your keyboard wasn't your problem all along. Never the problem. It's always between the ears, but no one wants to complain <laughs> about that. No, it's much no, easier it's, to blame somebody else. I would I'll say it. I wish very frankly that I was better designed. I would love that. <laughs> like there, there's about 70 improvements that I I would completely submit my body to Apple right now. <laughs> Uh, especially as I'm in my mid forties, I'm absolutely go to town. Take me to take me. If Apple design you, you need to be completely rebought and refurbished every four or five years. You're, you're, it's true. We need to buy so many adapters for you, Paul. We'd be like, oh, Paul's chair doesn't work anymore. We need that the the new oh, adapter. Oh, that is true. I, every day you'd wake up, I'd wake up and I'd be like, God, I miss MagSafe. <laughs> Just like FireWire. You know, that was I, so good. Look, Firewire, no, no. USB, well, except for all the ports being the same. Look, all right, look, <laughs> actually, if we can spend some time, let, let's talk a little more about the book, but then let's talk about USB ports for a couple, like at least for a couple of hours, right? Because because I have a lot of thoughts and feelings. The, the USB no. port is actually, there's a good story behind that. That's a common example people use of really bad design that you get 50-50 odds when you mm -hmm. want to connect something, it's 50-50. I mean, there's little tricks you can try, but for most people, it's 50-50. And somehow it always seems like even though it's 50-50, it takes four or five tries. No one's right. ever quite figured out why that is. Right. But the story behind that was this is in the PC era. 
when there were like 12 different kinds of adapters, serial, parallel, right. all those, all that crap. And they were trying to get a coalition of companies to agree on one standard. They had a design that was more like the USB-C that was reversible, but it cost a lot more to make. They, they didn't think they could get IBM and uh, Xerox and Compaq and all those companies to agree on this expensive alternative. I mean, back then you couldn't too. You, you couldn't get those orgs to agree. They, they wouldn't work together. No, they did agree on the USB standard. That was the mm -hmm. achievement. But the trade-off was... You had a cheaper choice, but it did get rid of 12 things. We don't remember that anymore. But back at the time, even though it was this solution we complained about now, it was an improvement. And so that story is in the book to talk about trade-offs. That mm -hmm. when we complain about a design, oh, this is terrible. Well, would you pay 10 bucks more for a better version? Because you didn't. You bought something that doesn't work as well. So there's a trade-off that you make as a purchaser of what you're going to prioritize or not. And trade-offs are inherent in design. They're also inherent in engineering. I think engineering and design overlap so much in many ways. But understanding that trade-offs are inherent to design gives you a different lens to think about things that you use. But also, when you're making stuff, the clearer you are about the trade-offs you're making probably sets you on a better path to design something that's higher quality. You talked about design. You talked about engineering. Like, Where do they begin and end in your head? I think that anytime you have an idea for something and you try to make it real in the world, you're doing some amount of designing and engineering. Designing is probably more focused on the figuring out how it should be, and the engineering is figuring out how to actually build that thing in a way that has reliability and quality in it. But there's a huge part where you're doing some of both. And so I was a computer science student, and we learned to write code and do algorithms. They never mentioned the word design, and I think that was terrible. I think that had we applied any basic amount of design practice of thinking about alternatives, thinking about goals, thinking about prototyping, that would have been helpful as an engineer. Because when you write an API, you're doing both design and engineering. You're creating a thing someone else is going to have to use, and you're trying to guess at what's going to be easy for them to do. So to me, an API is this weird combination of design, engineering, and interface design, even though it's purely code, which shouldn't really have an interface, right? The easy answer was my first one, though. They overlap in the middle. Design is usually about figuring it what it should be, and engineering is how do you build this so no one dies when they use it. I was going to say there's this like validation and feasibility conversation that I've, that ideally is happening, right? Like design is what this is what this should be. Engineering is like this is what this can be, and like hopefully those things kind of meet in the middle. I mean, it, you know, it's interesting when you said like you didn't pay the extra ten bucks for higher quality. It's tough to convince CEOs and consumers to pay for the thing that disappears when it's not a problem, right? I mean, it's the thing. Like Scott, you are you're whistling the post light tune. Yeah, right now. yeah. Like, oh, design engineering, <laughs> but it is true. You you know, you're like the importance of design, and the person buying on the other side is like, what the, you're talking about teapots man. I need to get an API right. built. I, I, I actually, when we talked about API, when Scott was talking about APIs, I wanted to go down the rabbit hole, rabbit hole of like, well, there are users for code. They're developers. But now you're getting into like developer experience and, you know, the, the front end developer is using the API, the back end developer. So there is an interface, right? And there should be documentation. It should be obvious and easy. And and uh, this is something I'm deep in right now, one of our one of our projects. So, but there's a user, you're solving, you're solving a problem for someone, right? When you're designing something or ideally you are. Yeah, I think that people who make APIs should do usability studies on them. There's no reason that they can't. They it's don't true. think of it with the same toolkit that interface designers do, but it is an interface. I mean, application, pro what is it, 
the last eye is for interface, right? It, so correct. Interface design. <laughs> interface design. You should learn from what interface designers do. And it's it's fascinating to me how much of the tech community is involved in interface design and design work that don't think of design as something that they do. And that's part of what I'm trying to solve with the book is that anyone who makes stuff, you're designing it. There's design involved. And where you want to draw the line between engineers and designers, I don't care. You're doing, you're trying to do quality work that solves a problem. And the more informed you are about how other people in the past have solved problems well, the better job you're going to do. And design is one way to frame, one lens on how you make things well. I mean, this is what I really like about the book is that you can use it as a tool to convince your boss or the marketing team or the engineering team for investing a bit more time in the thing that's invisible, right? In in saying like, what problems are we solving? Let's be, you know, you talk a little bit about being customer centric and how a lot of companies say that, right? But what does that really mean? And it means asking about what people need and what they want and and what they need from your product. And I think it sometimes can be really hard to get through, you know, you you know, we're going to build this we're going to ship this fast, right? But it's like, well, but what about the part where we put the time into design? I think that's tough to sell sometimes, to pitch upwards into a team. Yeah, it is. And so the I tell designers, and it's one of the early parts of the book, is that design is just, a, it's a kind of quality. I mean, engineering, you could argue, is a kind of quality too. That's fine. I'm not, I don't have any argument there. It's, it's a kind of quality. And once you start talking about quality, now you have, a people have stakes in that. Someone might say, oh, is, this, is my thing designed? Well, I don't know. If you say, is it your, the thing you're making qual- high quality or not? Everyone gets really defensive. Of course, what I make is high quality. And then you say, well, quality for who? How do you know this is actually solving this problem for people? So easy to use is this phrase that gets thrown around all, all the time, intuitive. It turns out that that's mostly just marketing language. Right. There are ways to measure ease of use. You have to observe people using the thing and see how long it takes them to actually complete a task, how many mistakes they make how many errors they make along the way. You can measure that. It's not that hard. But very few people who say, we're making an easy-to-use product. We're making an easy-to-use API. Actually do any of the due diligence to justify that word. And I think that's a problem. Who's ever going to admit they're a hack, right? Like that, and that, that is a moment of tremendous empowerment for yourself, I've found, when you just finally go like, no, sometimes I'm kind of a hack. I just kind of got it done. <laughs> and I, I didn't really deal with any of the consequences because there was a deadline. You know, right? Like, and I, I think you're right. If you tell anyone that they're doing anything less than the most extraordinary high-quality work, they're like, go to hell. But yeah, no, I mean, there's if we were seeing great design work, you'd see a lot of APIs that weren't complete garbage. And yet... When you go out and try to like, you know, authenticate against some public API, you realize like they don't, they never thought about the user, not once. Well, I mean, I remember from my coding days, it's hard enough to make the thing work at all, right? Right. And then you're figuring out how, what, what operators, what attributes, okay. It's all for you. It's your head. You know, it's, it's like writing in a way that a lot of writers write stuff that makes sense to them. But no, it doesn't make any sense to anybody else. So whenever you're creating something, part of the loop of what you're making has to be to observe people trying to use it and then learning from that. If you do that, you're never going to make anything terrible. You might not make something amazing, but the only reason you have an API that's that so obtuse and obscure is because nobody else other than the maker was involved in the process of figuring out what quality meant or what ease of use meant. That requires a kind of empathy. And also, one of the things I find to be a real struggle to, and this is something I've learned over and over, I'm sure you've, Gene has learned it as a public communicator, you've obviously learned it as a writer, explaining things requires a level of simplification that 
people usually find almost obscene, right? Like doing good design and thinking through how people actually are going to perceive requires you to get almost dumb and and to have a kind of empathy for how complicated things are. And I see this particularly with engineering and sort of digital driven cultures because they just assume that like, well, you know, if they don't get it, they're they're idiots. You know, and I feel that like when you're in this zone where it's like, a, you know, an API is a great example of something where there is a relatively high baseline and understanding for someone to just know what it is and how to use it. And then people just go all the way. They're just like, yeah, they'll figure it out to hell with it. Like it's, they're me, I'm smart and I got it so they can get it, which is a nightmare. And it's why we have so much friction in, the, in this world. I mean, I think it's a difference between I'm solving a problem that I have, which is that I, I have to get this thing done versus my job is to solve problems that you have. Like I'm giving you something for you to succeed. And I think that's that's the empathy that we're talking about. I mean, what's tough is when you have when your customer or your user or the person who's going to use the thing that you're designing, like have different problems, care about different things. The word empathy is such a it's not a bad word, but it, it means it's very like, oh, this this emotional component. And that's fine. I go. I cut to the core on this. It's about integrity. If you're building a thing for somebody else and you don't involve them in any way until it's done, and then you don't even listen to their feedback, you're a low integrity maker. Wow. Our design team is going to love this, this episode. I'm so excited. You're, you're pretending to make something for someone else. And it's sort of like buying someone an item of clothing that's 20 sizes too big or too small, or like you love rum, but they hate rum and you go, happy birthday. Here's some, you're acting out of low integrity. Right. You're giving it, you're giving a vegan a steak. <laughs> you're, you're in denial about what you're really doing. There is a place for people who really just want to make stuff that they like. That's totally fine. That's called artistry. That's called, mm. you're, you're an artist. You're making a thing. And that could be an engineering, uh, the engineering side of that. You're making a tool. But really, you only care that it solves the problem in a way that you care about. That's fine. And you can put that out in the world and say, you know what? If you like it, great. If you don't, fine. But if you market a product that says it solves a problem for you, but really you built it for yourself, that to me, again, you have an integrity problem. You're, there's a mismatch between what you did and what you're saying you did. And no one, no one really ends up being happy with that. Look, there's a there's an important part of this book that we should talk through, which is, and you know, as 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 I work through it, it is the four big questions, right? Like there are, there, you have a lot of practical guidance and a lot of ways to see the world, and it's the four things that you should ask uh, about design. And I'm I'm just gonna, are you ready for me to to sort of like, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna steal some thunder, but one page of thunder, if that's cool with you, and read them out. Go for it, yeah. Here they are, Gina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. It's, Get your integrity aligned here. Uh, what are you trying to improve? That's number one. Two, what are you trying to improve it for? Question mark. Number two. Number three, how do you ensure you are successful? And four, who might be hurt by your work now in the future? So, you know, you've got a big book here and you've got the four like most important questions. How'd you get there and why those four? The first draft of the book, I'm not sure it had any of those questions in it. Maybe it had the first two. And the form of the question was what I had learned as a in school and as a project manager. And that problem was always, the way we always framed the question was, what problem are you trying to solve? Because in so many meetings where you have smart people, engineers, designers, managers, but you have all these ideas, you're brainstorming and it gets really fun. And the idea goes into all these interesting places intellectually to you. And my job as a project manager and a team manager, I'd be in these meetings and someone's just like, wait a second, this is fun. What are we solving here? Like, what does this actually do? It does something that's interesting to build because creatively, intellectually, it's interesting, but 
are we solving a problem for anybody here? And that would usually bring the conversation back to the real world. We have a customer base. We have a bunch of goals. Let's bring it back. And so a more positive way to frame that, I'm a New Yorker. I tend to frame things in a cynical, skeptical way, better than what problem to solve. I was coached into framing it as, what do you want to improve? It's a more positive way to frame it. So that's where that first question came from. So the second question is you have to pick and study and think hard about who are you actually building this thing for? But also the non-goal, who are you making, who are you deliberately saying we're not building it for, for them? And if you don't do that, you end up something that tends to be mostly about you because you're the, you're the only user that you naturally intuit everything you, ch- you try out. Oh, that works fine. If you don't specify that, you have no idea if you're actually making something that will solve anyone's problem. So those are the two that come first in teaching anyone about how to make something good. Whether you're an engineer, designer, you're a chef, those are the first two. What are you trying to improve and who are you trying to improve it for? And every good business, every good book, every good apartment complex, they all had some amount of that thinking. They were clear about what we, what are we improving and who are we improving it for and who are we not thinking about that's never going to be our customer. Let's make sure we don't fall into the trap of building stuff for them because that's really not who we're aiming for. It's a hard struggle. I mean, we, we do it all the time because we're, you know, we, we market the services of the firm and we're always trying to figure out who to communicate with because we need to speak very broadly to, to you know, to ranges of people who, you know, both people will find us interesting, but also people who will want to buy services, right? And it's so easy not to. It's so easy to just kind of dwell on what's interesting mm-hmm. uh, and in the moment and not think bigger picture. And it's a continual endless fight. And we don't think of it, we think of it almost as a marketing challenge, but you know, listening to you talk, it's like, well, that's actually a design problem around how we communicate as a firm and how we talk about this podcast and all the other things that we do and the way we do our case studies. Like, are we, are we always making sure we're hitting that group? And it's easy to slip. That's the easiest thing to let go. So I'm not, I'm not surprised that you would anchor that. You'd, you'd anchor your design strategy with those. I have a big question. What, 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 do you, what comes to your mind when I say the words design thinking? Well, uh, I have mixed feelings about that one. I think anyone who has a design background has mixed feelings about that one. On the one hand, the positive hand, design is basically an unknown thing to most of the professional world and most of the real world, the, the wider general audience world. So it's the first example of a positive thing that's not assumed to be about fashion or handbags or interior design, which is what most people think of when you say design. It's this term. It's about problem solving and it's something positive. So I think in terms of marketing, the whole idea that designers actually have skills and a skill set that's useful, I think it's great. Poof. We got to be careful there. They're going to start asking for things. But okay. Okay. I got it. Uh, On the other hand, it is a trivialization of what makes design hard. You now have this simple playbook. It's a step-by-step thing. It's a process. And it implies that just by knowing that process, you will now be a good designer. And as you just pointed out, Paul, it's a constant struggle. A lot of the things that make design difficult, it's this balancing act. It's very easy to get out of balance. And knowing that process does not give you the benefit, that the necessary benefit of the experience of having designed many things and learning these nuances and these little corner cases and to be actually a good designer of something. And a lot of people have taken a certificate course in design thinking, and now they think they're as qualified to design something as someone who's been a product designer for 10 years. That trivialization is real, but on the whole, I think the ben- the benefits of it have been better than the negatives. You know, in tech, that's like agile, right? Where it's like it's a reasonable technology to keep a, a reasonable approach 
to keep you from never shipping software. And software sure as hell doesn't want to ship. Like there need to be ways that you can approach that specific challenge. But the minute it becomes the the sort of agile religion and people start lecturing on you on Scrum versus Kanban or whatever, it's just diminishing returns. And it can be one of the most exhausting. You know, I've, I've seen, been in so many conversations where people just sort of argue as to how the process is more important than doing the work. And I, you know, my brain starts to leak out of my ears when I hear those conversations. Yeah, it's a, I agree. It's a similar trap. I have a same fear, of, not fear, but distaste for process centricity. The magic is never in the steps. The steps help you learn and give you a framework, but every project's different. Every team is different. And I have a little hesitation when there's an agile scrum master, whoever, who's a master of the process, but hasn't really shipped that much themselves or designed that much themselves. They're masters of the mm. process, but what is the process? It's sort of like a writing expert who hasn't published a book <laughs> or like they're an expert and they, they may actually give good advice, but I wouldn't look at them the same way as someone who's actually done it and can speak from the experience of doing it. Cool. 35,000 English professors just burst into flames. <laughs> but that's fine. That's fine. Everything's great. Let's, uh, can, can I, I want to I jump in. I want to go to that question about who could this design, I don't know if I'm phrasing it the, the right the way it is in the book, but who could this design hurt? This is something that I think we think about in tech. Uh, well, we often think about it after the fact. Like there's like designing for the happy path and thinking about the best use of this thing. I'm trying to solve a problem for a person. So I'm going to create a tool that they can, you know, solve a problem or achieve an end, right? And you, you're rarely during that process thinking about all the things that could go wrong. And then when things get launched, particularly at scale from a big tech company, for example, there's, there can be like unintended consequences around privacy or, or you know, data or et cetera. How do you weigh, and I know this is a really big question, but how do you weigh the risks of the way that a, a product can hurt someone with the rewards, the service, the thing that it could do for those people, right? Because every, every tool can be used <laughs> for good <laughs> or, for, or for bad. I, I just think this is a, a conversation that we all have to have constantly. It's a great question. I don't have an easy answer. This is yeah. ethics. I included it in the book because most of the time, I had, the same, I had this experience as an engineer in college. There was no mention, not in any course, in any workshop at all, about the possible danger I could inflict on the world through my ability to write code. I think that's wrong. I think that is a low professional standard. And engineering, computer science is not new anymore. This is, this is yeah. decades old as a profession. And we look at the impact we've had on the world. It should be something. Anyone who makes anything gets some slice of you are going to impact people and you're going to make things that hurt people. You better have some basic understanding of how to think about these problems before you put stuff out into the world. I'm not saying a startup shouldn't start stuff and like, hey, let's see what sticks. That's okay. But there should some awareness that these little things, once they become popular, have different effects. They should know those stories and be familiar with those questions. Most books on design and engineering say zero about morality or ethics. And I'm not saying that it should go into detail and tell you how to be moral. That's way too complicated. But it should say yeah. your choices in engineering have morality issues in them. People are going to get hurt by what you make. And the more thoughtful you are about that, you can probably make something that is closer to your dream of actually changing the world in a good way. To do that requires some sensibility around these questions. Yeah. And that's why I included it in the book. No, I, I mean, this is real, right? Like, it's not built into the curriculum. In some of the programs, it is an extra, you know, it, it can be a required course, but there isn't a, there are very few documents and sort of fundamental texts about ethics that connect ethics to the actual practice of 
programming, right? And I think also because academic programs tend to be about computer science, which is very abstract in in its yeah. as opposed to practice. And look, I mean, I bring this up a lot. My favorite document along these lines, there's a, uh, if you just search risks-L, it's a mailing list that's been going on since the 80s about the risks inherent in computer systems. And, you know, read that for a couple months and your your eyeballs will just like- You'll never do anything your, ever again. <laughs> everything you touch can, can kill everything. Like my mouse can kill. It's like when I had my child, suddenly everything in the world was something that was going to hurt or kill her oh, <laughs> and yeah. not just some uh, innocuous uh, object <laughs> that was a piece of furniture in my house. No, it's true. The children make you realize two things. They make you realize you live in a murder factory no matter where you are. <laughs> and the second thing they do is that actually I, children are tremendous consumers of designed products. Like I watched my daughter using like a, you know, a keyboard or, or I watched her do Google Hangouts once and it was so frustrating to her that she couldn't edit a message that she had a tantrum on the floor when she was like five years old and she was supposed to be you know, typing to her, her grandmother. And um, yeah, my, my kid is figuring out a trackpad, right. For remote school right now. And she's seven. And, and I'm just like, this isn't intuitive at all. Nothing about this is intuitive. No, these are, and we, we really take that, we take that for granted, right? These are human participants in the system and they are like, no way, no way. So actually let's, we've been talking about people who, who do evil and bad things unintentionally and people like Gina and I who lack all integrity, <laughs> but let's talk about like, who does it well? You're obviously a fan too, right? Like you wouldn't be doing this if you didn't love design and care about it and think about it. Like when you're watching this industry, you know, I think everybody in the world would be like, oh, Johnny Ive, but you're like, who do you like watch and think? I, I need to see what they're thinking and what they're doing. That's a totally fair question. I don't know that I have a good tech-centered answer. Well, here's one. I don't know that you're going to like it, but uh, it was my birthday a few weeks ago. And uh, hey, happy I don't, birthday. Thank you. Thank you. I don't need very much. I'm a happy guy. I'm not really a, like a consumer kind of person, but I bought a new axe. Given I can't go to the gym anymore and I live kind of in the woods, I split wood and had a really bad old Home Depot $20 fiberglass piece of crap axe. And so I bought like a decent axe. This axe is just, it's well-made. It feels really good in my hands. It's easy to sharpen. It just works really well. And so my productivity for a wood production. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that no, but that's real. I mean, it makes you want to do this thing that. It does. It makes me, it's just so comfortable. It makes me want to do the thing. And that's, that's the bar. And I don't, and I'm still thinking about the axe while I'm using it because it's still pretty new, but I'm thinking about how much easier it's just so much less frustrating to use it to do the job you know i i this might be a function of my age but you know i, I spent 10 years building a spec for to-do lists a markdown language for, for to-do lists and building like apps to manage a to-do list mm. and i got to this place where every time a thought came into my head I, I wanted to build this practice that if i had a thought and there's something i wanted to do or at least wanted to look at that i would get it out of my head you know as quickly as possible this is part of the life hacker thing or whatever and at some point i was like i do not want to pick up a piece of glass and have to turn it on and do the face idea and then launch the app and then type the thing I just want to write it down. And so I just, I I picked a pen that I really love and a notebook that I really Mm -hmm. love. And for the last two years, I use a pen and a notebook and every single day I sit down at my desk and it is inefficient and it it, it takes ink and I'm killing trees and my handwriting is really not that good, but it's become part of this like ritual that I do in the beginning of the day where I sit down and I write down my schedule and my tasks and I love to do it. And so I do do it and I'm just much more effective. And so I, the reason why I'm I'm going off on this is I'm I'm looking at my, my notebook and my pen here, but I just think that 
that the tools that feel good to you and that like that let you do things that are kind of annoying that you don't really want to do, but make you want to do them. That's so powerful. Well, you know what, what both of you are describing, right? Is that it kind of invokes a ritual and a sense of sensation and, and, and a group of sensations when you interact with these objects. So it's like, yeah. oh, it's wood chopping time or Gina, it's like it's writing it down time. And I think that. Like the computer never gives you that clarity because there's always, you can always just flip the switch to another freaking thing and all that, you know, the, the SDK is kind of all blurred together and you're in the info space yeah. and you're just kind of like moving stuff around. It's true. So Scott, to, for takeaway for our listeners, like what is the big takeaway that you would like for people? First of all, the name of the book is... How Design Makes the World. It's really good. I really enjoy it. I love that it comes from someone. I mean, it's obviously written by someone by you, someone with passion and curiosity about design. What's the big takeaway? What do you want people to, to take away from the book when they put it down? The first thing I, I want people should be curious. Why do I love this thing? Who, who made it? What other choices could they have made that would have made it worse? Why didn't they do that? And the same thing about things that frustrate them. Who, who made this choice? What were their alternatives? Why did they have the power to choose this thing that affects me? What questions can I ask when something new is being made? All that comes out of the books. So curiosity, being curious about all the things that we use and that affect us. And, you know, this is an obvious point, but it's a very visual journey. Like there's a lot of, a ton of thinking and a ton of good design to look at and think through in this book, which is, is very fun as we're reading it. Scott, how do people get in touch with you and, and how do they acquire said book. It's on Amazon. It's basically on sale everywhere. My name is Scott Birkin. My website's scottbirkin.com. I'm most active on Twitter at, at Birkin. B-E-R-K-U-N, friends. Correct. Well, this was great. It makes me feel like I, I have a major integrity problem. However, I am even more committed to design yeah, after this conversation. I'm fired up. So, I'm fired up. I'm ready yeah, to start too. talking about integrity in our design meetings. I'm excited. This is good. Uh, Thank you for joining everyone. us, Scott. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This is fun. You guys are fun. Thank you very much. This is great. Uh, Gina, it's a good good person. I like that person. That is a smart and passionate person. I like people who have opinions he, and state them clearly. He has stayed on this track, too. This is an important subject to this individual. Yeah, thing. there's a lot of thought here. People should go read that book. We really do try to factor design into all the work we do. And we, you know, we think about APIs that way. And we think about the platforms we build as objects that will be used by other human beings. And it isn't always something that everybody's excited about. They're like, what are you talking about? It's an API. Just use this library and make the API. We often succeed and no one says anything about it, <laughs> right? Because yeah, that's the other your thing. design like, disappears. Oh, yeah. So look, that's, that's just, it's now time for us to disappear. <laughs> That'll be the sign. Like this podcast is going to vanish. Just, yeah, we're just going to vanish. We're going to disappear in the back of your life. something that's in your ear. It feels so comfortable. Yeah, thank so. you though for listening. And thank you for having me. This is yes. a lot of fun. You're no guest. <laughs> All right. Well, look, if people need us, Postlight is your digital product partner. We work with you to develop product strategy, and then we help you build design and build the things that you need to do in order to make that product strategy real. So when you are getting your business into the world through the web, through mobile, we are the ones who will stand by you for months and often years to get that done. So if you need us, how how do people get in touch? You should send us a note. Hello at postlight.com. When you're thinking about your product and you're thinking about design, you're thinking about the ways that it can be better, reach out. Let us know what's going on. We read every email, all of us, and reply a lot. And you can also get in touch with us on Twitter at Postlight. That's right. We'll give you a plan. We'll give you a product. 
All right, friends. Let's uh, let's get back to work. Bye, Paul. Bye, Gina. <laughs> <laughs>